There are many important meals throughout scripture. And this seems to be a meal where a blessing is given, where one greater than the one receiving the blessing bestows on them something they don't necessarily deserve. But in this meal, he's inviting Abram to fellowship and blessing. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. God Most High, we come to you this morning with gratitude mingled with expectation because your word is light and it is life. And as much as we are thankful that you're a God who provides and reveals, we also desire and anticipate that you will provide all that's needed for our growing church. And we also come with expectation for you to speak to us this morning through your word by your spirit. Your word is inspired, it is inerrant, it is infallible, and it is sufficient to provide all that we need for life and godliness. Lord, you are the one who gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we pray that you would give, that you would allow us uh, to take this next step of faith as a faith community uh, and to do it with prudence and wisdom and not with uh, some sort of Uh, presumption. So Lord, we're asking that you would be faithful to provide, and you've always been faithful to provide through generous believers. So Lord, we ask to that end that you would take care of us as a church. We've been so blessed uh, even here in this facility, and we pray that you would take us to the next place that you have for us, God. We ask today that you would open our eyes, for in keeping your commands there's great reward. So open our eyes and open our hearts as we open your precious word together. We ask it for Christ's sake, And in his glorious name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. David Schrock pastor in Virginia, writes these words. Listen to this, not on the screen. He says, Dear church, you've been invited to a covenant meal, a table set in the midst of hostile enemies. Bread and wine are the food and drink of choice. 
The host is a righteous king who lives in the holy city, Jerusalem, and he serves God most high as a faithful priest. When you look at your invitation, the RSVP calls you to renounce your idols and to acknowledge the greatness of your host. This table offered freely to you is set for those who believe God's promises and refuse to partner with the kings of this world. Indeed, this table does not communicate righteousness. Rather, it is for those who have been justified by faith in the promises of God Most High. And he says, what is this invitation describing? He says, if you said the Lord's Supper, you would be correct. And if you said Abram's meal with Melchizedek, you would also be right. But how can this be? How can one description point to two events? The answer is that God ordained the Old Testament events of Genesis 14 to prepare the way for Jesus Christ and the covenant he sealed with his blood and celebrated on the night before his crucifixion. It's awesome. That's what we're going to be studying together this morning. We pick up the story in Genesis 14 where we left off last week. If you weren't here last week, Abram has rallied 318 trained men. These men grew up in his household and they went and fought against a confederation of four city kings. These kings were so powerful that they had defeated five united city kingdoms and they had carried away all the spoils of war which included the citizens and goods of all those cities, including in Sodom, which included Abram's nephew, Lot. Abram had pursued them with just 300 men. It reminds you of Gideon. He had divided his men. He had struck at night wisely under the cover of darkness, and he had won a spectacular and decisive, sizable victory. And now on his return home, he's going to be greeted by two kings, what we just read. And each of their offers are distinctly different. One of these kings, Melchizedek, is an enigmatic character who graces Abram with bread and wine, as well as the blessing of God. The other king, the king of Sodom, offers Abram all the spoils of the city, but ostensibly in a way that would yoke Abram together with him in an unholy alliance. And we're going to see today how Abram in a sense, casts off the idolatry and the compromise that Sodom represents. And he displays in this section of scripture both worship and obedience as an example of how we, the just, are to live by faith. In fact, we're going to see four things that are particular about not only Abram, but also Melchizedek's faith, which will serve as important points for our faith as well. We have been going through this section of Abram and making application points as we go as our main points. But more than that, and probably more important than that, we're going to see how the priestly king of Salem foreshadows our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God Most High, who lives to make intercession for us. So as we come to the Lord's table later this morning in our gathering, we're going to be reminded of the power of the gospel and our need to also, like Abram, respond to Christ's blessing with obedience and with faith. So let's begin with the first section. I'm not going to give you all of them. We'll just go one by one. The first thing we're going to note is that faith receives from the priest king of God Most High. That's the first step of faith is to receive from the priest king. Now look at verse 17 again. After his return from the defeat of these kings, we see that there are two kings that go to meet Abram. The one is the king of Sodom, 
The other is Melchizedek. Now, how can this be the king of Sodom? I thought he either died by slaughter or he fell into one of the bitumen pits. So this is most likely his replacement. So someone has been replaced uh, to take this role of the new appointed king. Remember the battle of the nine kings that we studied last week, the beginning of chapter 14, uh, was a great defeat of those kings. And so uh, we have the king, the new king, if you would, of Sodom, and we have the other king, this obscure figure named Melchizedek. Spurgeon said, we see little of him, but there was nothing little in him. So we don't get a lot here from this section, but as we'll see throughout scripture, he's brought up again in Psalm 110, which we opened our service with this morning. And he's mentioned extensively as a picture of Christ in Hebrews 5 through 7. Now, we don't know much about where he came from, his lineage, nor where his descendants ended up. We don't know anything, but we do know a few insightful details from this text. So if you're taking note, I'd love for you to jot these things down about Melchizedek. What are some notes about him? First, his name means my king is righteousness. That is what Melchizedek means. My king is righteousness. So he had the title of king, the king of Salem, but he rightly understood who was the ultimate authority over his little dominion. If you remember back in the garden, Adam was given dominion and rule. He was a vice regent created in the image of God. Wherever he went in the garden or over all creation, as he went and ruled, Adam's jurisdiction was to represent and reflect the greater jurisdiction of Yahweh, the ultimate reign of the true king. But we know what happened in Genesis 3. In his sin, in his unrighteousness, he corrupted and marred the God-given authority. So now everywhere he went, though he was supposed to take the rule and reign of God, everywhere he went, he brought corruption. And so here, it's so refreshing to see an earthly king reaffirming what God had originally given to Adam. One who submits to the righteous law of God. My king, my king, the one I submit to is righteousness. He submits to the rule of God to our surprise and delight. But secondly, we learn here, if you're taking note, that he is the king of Salem. Almost all scholars believe that Salem is short for Jerusalem or Jerusalem. So remember, these kings were more like ruling mayors. They were over the city, but they presided over these cities in the seat as executive. The ex we would say the executive branch, if we were to use American terminology. But they sat as potentate. They sat as ruler, as the king, the one who not only ruled over, but also represented, a representative of their citizen. And so this king presides over what I would argue is the most important city on the planet, the most important city in creation, the most important city even today, Jerusalem. Thirdly, we learn that he greets Abram in a very important place, the King's Valley. A lot of scholars believe that this King's Valley is the Kidron Valley. And the Kidron Valley is located just outside of the old city of Jerusalem. I think we have a picture of the Kidron Valley. Never really was inhabited. It, it remains, even today, mostly uninhabited. It's an open piece of land where for, for many generations, idols were taken out of Jerusalem, down into this valley. 
And these idols were taken down to be destroyed. They were, they were burned, they were ground up, and the, the dust was dropped into what's known as the brook Kidron. There's, when it would flood, there would be a little bit of a brook, a little bit of a small, well, in Georgia, we called it a crook or a creek. So a little, little brook, a little creek that ran through the valley. And uh, King Asa, King Josiah, and King Hezekiah all brought reform to Israel, and it says that they destroyed the idols of the city, the idols of, of Israel in this valley. They ground them up, they threw the dust, dumped it into the river. In fact, Second Chronicles 29, it says that the priest went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, which is a sad thing. They had to go in to cleanse it. They brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. The Levites took it and carried it out to the brook Kidron. They dumped the idols, or you could say the dust of the idols. By the way, this is the same valley that Jesus walked through when he entered the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. It was there that he agonized over the idolatry and the uncleanness of his people Israel that he was about to bear and to face the fearsome wrath of God Almighty as his own death brought cleansing and forgiveness to God's people. So this is a very historic and important a piece of property where kings, these two kings come to meet Abram. Number four, if you're taking note, important things about Melchizedek, he brings an interesting gift of bread and wine. Now, remember, this gift was unnecessary in the sense that Abram had carried back all the spoils of these various five cities that had been defeated. And he would not be in short supply of food. It wasn't that he was hungry and he needed something to eat or that he, he was famished and needed some wine. He's coming back with 318 trained men. We don't learn that any of them die, as well as Lot, the other prisoners of war who dwelt in Sodom and those other cities. And what is happening here is this seems to be, some scholars believe this is what seems to be a covenant meal, or if you don't like that term, a meal that is accompanied with a blessing. So in Genesis 31, you can jot this down and read it later, Laban and Jacob, Abram's grandson, make a family or clan covenant. They make an agreement where there's a blessing. And in that covenant, they eat together. We know at Mount Sinai, when God makes a covenant with Israel, when he cuts the covenant, which we'll look at next week with Abram in Genesis 15. But we read there at Sinai that Abram, that Aaron, that Aaron's sons, and 70 elders ate. There was a meal that they enjoyed together. Even in Leviticus, there was eating in the sacrificial system. There was a fellowship or peace offering. And this was the only offering where the worshiper, you ate part of the sacrifice yourself. The priest, the worshiper, Yahweh himself shared in the shalom of partaking of the same meal. It's a picture of fellowship, of restoration, of right relationship, of enjoying and receiving God's blessings of faithfulness and fellowship. We remember the Passover. The Passover wasn't just a meal, uh, and it wasn't just a random event, but it was a commemoration of the blessing and protection, deliverance of God as the slain lamb was consumed. And in consuming that lamb and applying the blood, the people received redemption. We know when Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, in his blood, what does he do with his disciples? He shares a meal. There's blessing that comes in this fellowship and in this meal. This wasn't a business contract where at the Last Supper, Jesus said, sign here, Peter. Does everyone agree? Let's sign here. No, this was more than a transaction with signatures. This was a meal 
of fellowship. We know when Christ comes again in the new heavens and the new earth, we will feast together with him at the wedding supper of the Lamb as sin is forever and fully vanquished and death and every tear is finally wiped away and he makes all things new. There are many important meals throughout Scripture and this seems to be a meal where a blessing is given where one greater than the one receiving the blessing bestows on them something they don't necessarily deserve. But in this meal, he's inviting Abram to fellowship and blessing. Now, number five, if you're taking note, this is also insightful, that he is known as priest of God most high. You want to circle that word in the text, priest. This is the first mention of priest in scripture. And we know that Aaron will be the first recognized priest in Israel, But here, centuries earlier, is a man who stands before Yahweh to minister to him and to make intercession for the people. That's what a priest would do. Now, rarely, on purpose, rarely were priests uh, to be, or kings to be priests. Rarely, kings had the priestly role. That was a rare thing on purpose because this would create a conflict of interest. Kings were not called to perform sacrifices for the people on their behalf, Uh, And that's one of the reasons that Saul was disposed of as king over Israel. He didn't want to wait for Samuel. He was impatient, so he rushed out and presumed on God. And so this is is the first time priest is mentioned. This is also the first time the title of Yahweh being God Most High is used. By the way, this is a frequent title in the Psalms. And this refers to God who is most high. This refers to God's absolute transcendence. This shows us that God is not just our boyfriend who we are hoping if we rub the right way, he'll give us the blessings that we want. No, this is showing us that God is far above all rule and authority, that he is over against all authority on earth and over all idols. All men and angels are called to worship him alone. He's God most high. Now, this is interesting because this priest king of Jerusalem comes out to bless Abram. He initiates this meal. He brings bread and wine, and he offers his blessing upon Abram. This means he's greater than Abram, the one who God had called out of Ur of the Chaldees to make a covenant with. The four powerful kings who defeated the five lesser kings, they were greater than those five kings. But Abram defeated them. So Abram's greater Then the four kings who defeated the five kings. So out of the nine kings, Abram's greater. But this 10th king is greater even than Abram. Not because of his warfare, might, or army, but in his generosity and in his blessing. He was greater than Abram because the blesser always, or the greater always blesses the lesser. And so we'll see the importance of the spoken blessing in subsequent chapters in Genesis. But for now, Let's read the blessing. Let's look at our second aspect of faith. Faith not only receives from uh, the God Most High, uh, but faith also returns the glory to God. Let's look at the second section, verses 19 and the first half of 20. It says, and he blessed him. And here's what he said. Here's the blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. That's God Most High, not Abram. Abram's not the possessor of heaven and earth. And... Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, I like what David Schrock says here. If you're taking note, he says this. He says, in the position of a righteous mediator, 
the position Aaron and his sons would later adopt in Israel, in the place of righteous mediator, Melchizedek communicates the blessings of God to the man who would in the next chapter receive the gift of righteousness by faith in God's promises. And just pause real quick. As I originally studied this, it seems as though Genesis 14 is a detour. It's a stepping away from what we've already learned about Abram. What is going on here? This seems such a random side trail. And if you've been in class, you know, sometimes the teacher goes off. Is that what's happening? Is Moses just going off on a side trail? Is this not an important part of the story? I love what he says here. He, he goes on to say, uh, Genesis, indeed, Genesis 14 is not a detour from the storyline of Abraham and redemptive history. Rather, it plays a key part in seeing Abram as a mediator of blessing to the nations, which we'll see, or we already saw in Genesis 12, we'll see again in 22. And then he goes on to say this. In other words, after meeting Melchizedek, dining at his table and receiving his blessing, Abraham and his heirs become a nation of royal priests who will inhabit Melchizedek's Salem and proclaim a message of peace that invites all the families of the earth to come and eat at Melchizedek's table. Wow, so this is a very important, incredibly important blessing. Notice that Melchizedek acknowledges that the victor of this battle is not the great Abram. No, it was Abram's great God. It was the Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. Abram may have used stealth and skill and might, but God alone was the one to receive the glory for delivering the enemies into his hand. I like what Stephen Cole says. He says, there was no backslapping or politicking. Melchizedek was a king and a priest, not a king and a politician. His words were intended to remind Abram that the victory was God's and that this success was a result of God's blessing. Abram doesn't interrupt the blessing and say, hold on, time out. <clears throat> I should get some credit as well. Bless me for being so awesome in battle. No, that's because faith returns the glory to God. Melchizedek rightly returns the glory to who it alone deserves to belong to. And Abram, as well, receives the blessing as it goes and the glory goes to God. Romans 11.36, we know after this sweeping picture of the gospel being described from Romans 1 to the end of 11, Paul would go into benediction and say, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You and I, as those who walk by faith, we don't keep the glory. If we incur financial blessings, we don't keep the glory because Deuteronomy 8.18 says wealth comes from him. So we don't say, look at what my hand has produced. I am such a great and wise business owner. No, we say wealth comes from the Lord. And so we give the glory back to him. We don't keep the glory when something unexpected happens to us. If it's a good thing, Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. We don't keep the glory for some spiritual gift that we have because 1 Corinthians 12.11 says those gifts have been given to us sovereignly by the Holy Spirit as he wills. We don't even keep the, the glory for our own vitality. You may be healthy, you may work out, but we don't keep the glory even in that because Acts 17.25 says life and breath and everything are given to us by God himself. Paul could have taken the glory and the credit for the churches that he planted, but he didn't. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7, he says, I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God is the one who gives the growth. And so neither the one who plants or who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We as people of faith, we return the glory. Melchizedek sets a great precedent here to say it's God most high that is to be credited for your victory. We return the glory. We pass the glory on to who it truly belongs to, God alone. Thomas Watson said the glory of God is a silver thread which must run through all of our actions. We live to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into glorious, wonderful light. Here's a question for you. Do you return the glory when someone praises you? The scripture says in the Proverbs, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. Those are places where it's refined and proven and made stronger and a man is tested by his praise. When someone praises you, the next time that happens is a good gauge to see, do you hold on to the glory? Well, thank you, thank you. Or do you pass the glory on? Do you return it back? See, Abram's blessed and God is praised. That's how man or woman of faith is to live our life. We are blessed, but God is praised. And so let's move on to this next point. And as we do, just look at the second half of verse 20. Uh, Verse 20 says, And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Uh, I just want to focus on this for our third section. This is what is called a tithe. A tithe is simply a tenth, 10%. So if you hear tithe, that is literally 10%. So if we're going to use the literal language, I tithe on my income, that means I gave exactly 10% on my income. Now, some would use this verse, verse 20b, as a proof text for us as believers, as members of Christ's church, as the sole reasoning behind why we must give 10% of our income back to the Lord through the local church. The argument, the logic is this. See, this is prior to the law of Moses, and because it's prior to the law of Moses, This is binding on all believers. All believers must and should give 10%. We are children of Abraham, are we not? So as children of Abraham, we must give 10% of our income. Okay, that is some logic, and I've had friends that have argued with me on this. My question is this. What was it that Abram gave Melchizedek a tithe of? What is it? Remember where he's at. He's not at the Oaks of Mamre the Amorite. He's not giving... Melchizedek, a tithe of all that Abram possessed. He's giving him a tenth of all the spoils that he's just returned from war with. So those spoils, in a very literal way, belong directly to the other king who's standing there. You can see, can't you, in your mind's eye, the king of Sodom staring wide-eyed and open-mouthed as a tenth of what belongs to him is now given to another king. And I think that this is a witness to the glory of God, to the greatness of Melchizedek, and to the judgment of the wickedness of Sodom. All in one act. We see God is proclaimed, God is glorified, Melchizedek is honored and blessed, and Sodom is judged. So he gives a tenth, not of his own, but of what he has. Now, I don't think that means this is a good proof text for tithing as a Christian. But I think constraining Christians to give 10% of their income is absurd. Here at Shoreline, we expect 30%. (laughs) There may be seasons of drought and uh, seasons of famine, but you and I are called to be cheerful and sacrificial in our giving. We give more than just money. We give of our time. We give of our talents. We also give of our treasure. We use our gifts for God's glory, but we also use our homes. 
for his glory. We use the gifts he's given us. We use the resources that have been stewarded to us to help proclaim his kingdom. Giving God a portion of our income is trusting in him. It's faith. It's saying, Lord, it all belongs to you. It's not 100% mine. It's not even 90% mine. It all belongs to you. So Lord, how can I give back in worship? It's an act of worship. And thus, we do want to emphasize it more because it's a part of who we are as a covenant community of grace. We worship the one true and living God, and we trust God with the overflow and abundant blessings that we have because of the gospel. So we, when we give, it's not under compulsion. It's charitably and freely and joyfully and sacrificially. And you and I should find this to be an honor and a joy and not a duty. Uh, but it's important we don't neglect giving. So I think 10% is a great place to start and maybe to add every year as you grow. We don't hoard what God has given us. We don't become greedy for selfish gain. I love that Abram takes what he has and he gives it a tenth of it to the king of Salem. Now, if you're taking note, the second point is important. Faith, or third point rather, faith uh, responds to God's blessing with action. Abram receives this blessing from Melchizedek. And he doesn't just walk away and say, thank you very much. Appreciate that. I'm almost home. God bless you. We'll see you in the book of Hebrews. No, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. <laughs> Abram responds to this blessing by recognizing God's greatness in this priest king and by responding to God's blessing with tangible action. We know James told us in James 2.17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That can be very confusing. But the idea is that our faith is an active faith that proves that it believes with actionable evidence of allegiance and trust. We can say all day long, I believe in God, but so can the demons. The demons technically believe, but they don't submit. Their faith is not active. When we talk about faith, there are some theologians who have made this very very easy to digest, to understand what faith is. There's three aspects of this, and we've taught this before, but I think we need to come back to this when we think about faith. There could be someone at your work that says, oh, I, I'm a Christian, I, I believe, and you go, well, you've never submitted to Christ as Lord. And they go, I, I don't have to, I, I just believe that he, he's the Savior. We'll see these three aspects of faith help us to understand this. So there's notitia, that's the content. Christ is Lord, we need to, we need to know that. That's, that's what the thief on the cross knew. He, he knew it that much. The man in the middle cross said, you'll be with me today in paradise. That's all I know. It's the, it's the content of our faith. That's important. But then there's a census. That's conviction that what we believe is true. We're not like, well, I'm hoping that this is one of many paths that lead to heaven. No, we're convicted. No, this is truth. There's been conviction in my life. My life has been radically changed because of the gospel. And then there's fiducia, and that is reliance. That is as Pastor Micah said recently, that's jumping out of the airplane with the parachute, putting all of your faith that the parachute will open. That's trusting and relying on the Lord. And that, of course, the demons do not do. So the object of our faith, the conviction of our faith, and the reliance upon who our faith is in, that is to be responsive. Abram exhibits his faith in Yahweh by responding with gratitude and gifts. And in the same way, you and I are not saved by our works, but we are saved unto good works. So our response to the gospel, to a merciful and gracious God of truth, 
is for us to love, trust, and obey. When we have new members, we sit down as pastors with those members. We talk through what is the gospel. And one of the things we say is, what is your testimony of what, what Christ has done, like who you were before, and then what Christ has done, and then who are you now? And one of the questions we ask is, how is the gospel impacting you today? How is the gospel impacting you today? What is the response in your life based on faith? Faith, we see, responds to God's blessing with action. And so how do we know we're in Christ? Because he has been so gracious to us and we've responded. Now, in this final section, we're going to see the contrast of the king of Salem with the king of Sodom. So if you're taking note, we're going to see how faith, number four, renounces the offerings of this world. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to him, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a piece of fabric from you. Because then you would say, I have made Abram rich. He says in verse 24, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. You see what's happening here? The king of Sodom is offering, ostensibly, a treaty, an alliance. And the terms are all the possessions of the city's goods. This reminds me of Satan who came to Jesus in the wilderness and he showed him the kingdoms of the world and paraded all that this world had to offer and said, all this can be yours if you would just worship me. Well, Abram doesn't take the bait. He's already shown that his heart is not possessed by his possessions. He's already given a tenth of it to the greater king of Salem. And did anyone notice in verse 22 that Abram used the same language that Melchizedek used? Notice that when he speaks about Yahweh, he called him the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. He's using the same language. He's saying, hey, my God owns all things. I'm acknowledging that. I don't need or want a thread of your clothing or a sandal strap because God is my inheritance. Abram knew that this bribe would come back to bite him. The king of Sodom of all cities would get the credit. He would get the glory. Abram wanted God to receive the glory. So all he takes is the food that's been eaten and the share of the 318 men who went with him and also these three men in his alliance. He says, but no, I don't want to have what you have to offer me. Abram had already, it seems like he had already lifted up his hand to Yahweh and vowed that I will not be drawn in by the allure of this world. Hebrews 11 captures this well with two different people. It first speaks of Abram and his faith looking ahead at it says in Hebrews eleven twenty six, 26, uh, speaking prior to that about Abram looking to the heavenly better city, but here in eleven twenty six speaks of Moses. And it says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. You contrast Abram and Moses looking ahead and rejecting, renouncing what the world has to offer. You compare that with a New Testament companion of Paul named Demas. And you see there's a different response. There's an idolatrous response to this world. At the end of his life, Paul says to Timothy urgently in 2 Timothy 4, he says, do your best to come to me soon for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas loved, the word there is agape. He laid down his life in love with the present world. Faith doesn't do that. Faith doesn't love the present world. It 
rejects the offering of this world as it looks ahead to a greater reward. Maybe you have been offered a greater salary if you would just compromise your faith. I know, I'm definitely aware of some in our church who've either quit their job or changed positions recently because they were asked in their job to promote or accept wickedness. And they refuse to compromise. But like Abram, our call is to reject and renounce what the world offers in order to give God the glory that he deserves. And so that should be our response like Abram. Now, the question everyone wants to ask is, was Melchizedek a theophany or was he a type of Christ? So what are those, those two things? A theophany is an appearance of God in an intense manifestation. It's the presence of God accompanied by a visual display. And so some believe that the man that we meet here as Melchizedek was in reality Shem or Seth or some Old Testament saint or Jesus Christ himself. John Calvin said these are delirious notions to to find out who was Melchizedek really. A.W. Pink dismissed this as irrelevant speculation. So I don't want to waste our time with irrelevant, delirious speculations. I believe this was actually a man. He was actually the king of Salem because the text says it. Uh, and though I do think he was a type of Christ. So there are different messianic types. A type is simply a person, object, or event that in its very nature foreshadows another object, person, or event known as the antitype. And when this is Christ as the antitype, we call it a messianic type or Christological type. So messianic types in the Old Testament can either be conjectured or confirmed. Conjectured means they're not stated, but you can see that's a really cool picture of Christ. Confirmed are, the Bible actually says it and explicitly states it. So some example, remember we did the Noah study. We could say, remember, the ark is like a picture of Christ. It doesn't literally say that, but we see there's only one door, and the one door you enter through uh, brings you into the vessel that's made of wood that saves you from the wrath of God. We could say that's a cool picture. It's a conjectured one, but it is a conjectured type of Christ. We could do that with Moses, with David, with Nehemiah, and with many others. Uh, now, some of the uh, conjecture types are awkward, and people force them. So then everything in the Old Testament becomes a conjectured type of Christ. And um, that is a problem because some people will take the book of Song of Solomon and they will take every single thing in the Song of Solomon and try to apply it to our boyfriend Jesus. And I think that is very, very um, awkward. It reduces the high king of heaven uh, to something that's dangerous, and it's just poor exegesis. So there are some that are confirmed, though. They're explicitly stated. Here's a list. So Adam, in Romans chapter 5, is a type of the one who is to come. Hebrews 11 says Abel's blood cries out justice, but Christ's blood speaks a better word of mercy and redemption. Jesus revealed that his resurrection would be the antitype to Jonah's burial in the fish for three days. The bronze serpent of Numbers 21, this is a type of Christ, of one who would be lifted up on the pole, so to speak, on the cross, who would save men from the sting of sin and death. And both John the Baptist, Paul, and Peter, they all reference the Passover lamb as a picture of Christ's atoning sacrifice and salvation from destruction. Now, from this obscure text that we just read, Melchizedek is stated by the writer of Hebrews 
to actually be a confirmed type of Christ. We open the service with Psalm 110, verse 4, and it says that a coming king and priest would come not in the line of Aaron, but in the order of this enigmatic figure, a perpetual priest and king. And Hebrews 5 through 7 picks up on this. Chapter 7 says this. It says, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abram apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, notice it doesn't say, but literally being, but resembling the son of God. He continues a priest forever. Church, Jesus Christ is our priestly king of righteousness and peace. He imputes his righteousness to us by faith, not based upon the weakness of the law, but upon his own intrinsic righteousness. His own sonship is conferred to us as co-heirs, joint heirs with Christ. His own obedience is conferred to us even his obedience to death. It's imparted to us. His resurrection, his glorious life are the means by which we overcome sin and the grave. The priest of God most high, Christ, offers to us a fellowship meal, a covenant meal, which consists of his body as bread, his blood as wine, turning back the curse and providing a final sacrifice, which consists of something so powerful that the nations are invited to come and drink. And today, the only mediator between man and God is the man, Christ Jesus, our advocate, who sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. We need and we receive God's blessing through the mediation of our great king and priest after the order of Melchizedek. So this morning, as we prepare our hearts for the table of the Lord, you're invited those of you who have repented of your sin and trusted Christ by faith and you alone are invited to sit and commune to have right and restored fellowship and peace with God, our Father. But the only means of our acceptance and the only means of our entrance to this table fellowship are the merits of Christ. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, he wrote a hymn called Melchizedek, a type of Christ. And I want us to meditate on these words as we close. In just a moment, as we sing, you're going to stay seated. The ushers are going to come and distribute the elements. And as I said, your only qualification and invitation to this meal is that you have trusted Christ. You've repented of your sin. So if you have not done that, please let the trays pass by you as they're distributed we would ask that the grace of God not pass you by there. This morning, turn from your sin, receive him. Here's the, the hymn says this, King of Salem, bless my soul. Make a wounded sinner whole. King of righteousness and peace, let not thy sweet visits cease. Come, refresh the soul of mine with thy sacred bread and wine. All thy love to me unfold, half of which cannot be told. Hail Melchizedek divine. Thou great high priest shalt be mine. All my powers before thee fall. Take not tithe, but take them all. That's our prayer for us this morning, that we would submit to our great high priest and king. Let's bow our heads together.
and then we'll sing, we'll hold the elements, and I'll lead us in a time in just a moment. Our wondrous God, most high, we plead the merit of your blood this morning. We come to your table with grateful and sober hearts. We're in awe of your mercy. We're thankful for your cross. We praise the one who paid our debt and raised us up from the dead. We ask that you'd be glorified this hour as we remember the sacrifice and the victory that you obtained for us at Calvary. Lord, we ask this for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.